a common temptation of some forms of religion is to dismiss physical reality, to see it as Socrates did, as a land of shadows. But for Jews, the opposite is true. We believe in heaven, but we relish and cherish our lives on earth because we believe that through the Torah, physical reality is not to be transcended or avoided, but sanctified. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 197, C.S. Lewis and the Jewish Love of the Law. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. C.S. Lewis was perplexed. The great religious author and literary scholar had undertaken, at the suggestion of his wife, to write reflections on the Psalms, and therein he came upon a theme that he found difficult to understand and interpret. So many Psalms extol the Torah, the law of God, describing it not only as important, but as a source of ecstasy and delight for Jews. What, Lewis wondered, was so delightful about the law? The law of God must, of course, be obeyed, but what's so exciting about it? In his reflections, Lewis makes every attempt to address this enigma, without, I believe, ever truly getting to the ultimate answer. But fascinatingly, other Christian writers later wrote movingly and accurately about the Jewish love of the law, and their reflections allow us to appreciate even more the Psalms' descriptions of this profoundly Jewish source of joy. The very first Psalm begins with what is at the center of Jewish life. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. To love the law, to engage it constantly, to meditate upon it, this is the Jewish way. This theme is emphasized again, perhaps even more explicitly, in Psalm 19 which begins by extolling the beauty of God's natural world, and then suddenly, without segue, suddenly shifts to something that is more beautiful still. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It is verses such as these that caught Lewis's attention, or as he put it, quote, this was to me at first very mysterious, end quote. And he adds later, quote, I can understand that a man can and must respect these statutes and try to obey them and assent to them in his heart, but it is very hard to find how they could be, so to speak, delicious, how they exhilarate, end quote. Lewis gives us several attempts at understanding this. Referring back to Psalm 1, to the importance of meditating upon the law, Lewis gives us a somewhat negative bit of commentary. He writes, quote, This might imply a wholly innocent, though of course merely natural, delight in one's favorite subject, or on the other hand, the pleasures of conceit, pride in one's own learning and consequent contempt for the outsiders who don't share it, or even a venal admiration for the studies which secure one's own stipend and social position, end quote. These are Lewis's words, but he is missing the point. Jews do not study the Torah the way we study physics or literature, as wonderful as those subjects might be. The Torah is not for us one of many subjects, and it is certainly not a source of arrogance, but rather of humble delight. Lewis gets closer in his analysis of Psalm 119, which is a lengthy, elaborate, 
glorious peon to the law, given to us in alphabetical order, with several sentences beginning with the Hebrew letter Aleph, and then several beginning with Bet, and so on. Lewis's reflection on this psalm, written as it was by one of the most gifted literature scholars in the world, is fascinating. He writes, quote, As everyone knows, the psalm specially devoted to the law is 119, the longest in the whole collection. And everyone has probably noticed that from the literary or technical point of view, it is the most formal and elaborate of them all. The technique consists in taking a series of words which are all, for purposes of this poem, more or less synonyms, word, statutes, commandments, testimonies, etc., and ringing the changes on them through each of its eight verse sections, which themselves correspond to the letters of the alphabet. This may have given an ancient ear something of the same sort of pleasure we get from the Italian meter called the Sestina, where instead of rhymes, we have the same N-words repeated in varying orders in each stanza. In other words, Lewis continues, this poem is not and does not pretend to be a sudden outpouring of the heart like, say, Psalm 18. It is a pattern, a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours for love of the subject and for the delight in leisurely disciplined craftsmanship. The order of the divine mind, embodied in the divine law, is beautiful. What should a man do but try to reproduce it so far as possible in his daily life? End quote. Here Lewis is on to something. The complexity of the law, he is suggesting, the law given by God, is itself a way in which we commune with the mind of God. And this is why, for Jews, the law, the Torah, is experienced not only as a system of observance, but also, in fact, primarily as a source of meditation and engagement. But what Lewis misses even here is that the Jewish delight in the study of Torah stems not only from the orderliness of the law, and in fact there are passages in the Torah that appear in narrative form rather than in a systematic, legal fashion. The infinitive in Jewish parlance is not Torah study, but learning Torah. And it is this that we must ponder. The choice of phrase appears initially to be an odd one. Imagine a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Imagine, for example, the late Antonin Scalia at the age of 70, taking his law school textbooks off the shelf and reading them. Would anyone say of the justice that he was learning law? Surely not. Yet were a rabbi to take a biblical book or a Talmudic tractate, one that he has studied tens of times, hundreds of times, off the shelf and engage it, he would refer to his meditation as learning, Talmud Torah. Learning is what we do as Jews. A blessing said every day is one in which we ask God to become lomdei Torah lishma, learners of your Torah for its own sake. And we conclude, blessed are you, O God, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. This indicates that anyone who studies the Torah seeks not merely to review what has been learned, not only to marvel at its complexity, but rather to glean something new and to be taught something new by God. This passion for learning applies to the expert as much as the novice. The Torah is indeed a communion with the mind of God. Because God's mind is infinite, there is always something new that we can learn from him. Thus, as one rabbi put it in the Mishnah, Turn over the Torah and turn it over. Examine it thoroughly, for all is in it. If learning Torah is an engagement with the mind of an infinite God, then even as the law is eternal, new insights can always be discovered. And we believe that in these insights we engage God himself. This experience is part of the delight described in the Psalms. 
Lewis further offers other explanations for the Jewish delight in the law, including the suggestion that it derives from a contrast between the Torah and paganism. But this too misses the mark, for while the Torah is indeed wholly different from the pagan perspective, Jews continued to delight in the Torah long after they lived in pagan society. And beyond the delight in learning new insights from God, there are also other reasons for the Jewish love of the law. In the past few decades, a new genre of religious writing has appeared, Christian appreciation of the Jewish devotion to the Torah. These sensitive reflections are, I believe, instructive not only to Christians but also to Jews, as we can learn a great deal when we see ourselves through an outsider's insightful eyes. One of these writers is an author that we have recently mentioned, Maria Johnson. Johnson describes the legalistic aspects of Jewish life that she observes amongst her Orthodox neighbors, how, for example, they do not turn on a light on the Sabbath, how they divide their silverware between those used for meat and those for dairy. Johnson also admits that she is unsure as to why this lifestyle is so meaningful to them. She writes, quote, It is clear to me that their strange vigilance about light switches and spoons and the like has brought many of my friends to a faith in, a surrender to, and a relationship with God that is at least as vital, full, and intimate as anything I can claim to have experienced myself. But how it works remains a mystery to me, and probably always will. When I try to ask about the connection between observance and spirituality, the conversation invariably founders, probably because to them the answer to my question is so self-evident, something they take so entirely for granted that it is hard to put into words, end quote. So Johnson is also initially puzzled. But then, Johnson, writing about the mitzvahs or commandments of the Torah, hazards a pretty good guess at why they are so inspiring to Jews. And in so doing, she cites our own first psalm. Johnson continues, quote, On the one hand, of course, the law works because it is from God. He commanded his people to obey the mitzvahs and promised to reward those who did. Things have changed since then, but God's nature doesn't change, and he will keep his promises. Psalm 1 speaks of the man who keeps aloof from the ways of the wicked and buries himself day and night in the Torah. He will be like a tree by a stream, its roots deep in good soil, growing and flourishing and bringing forth fruit. A human life rooted in Torah will bear fruit the way a tree does, not grudgingly because it has to, nor pridefully to win admiration, but simply because it is its deepest nature to do so. End quote. So Johnson writes, and this I think is wonderful, and to further the metaphor of the tree, the laws of the Torah allow us to be spiritually rooted in this physical world, to join physicality and sanctity. Judaism has divinely dictated laws that relate to every aspect of human existence how we treat our fellow human beings, but also what foods we eat, how and whom we marry, how we conduct business righteously, how we farm, how we build a home, how we live every aspect of our lives. And it is through these laws applied to life that we thereby elevate and sanctify every part of the world. This is actually the true meaning of the phrase tikkun olam, a phrase that is terribly misused and has all too often become synonymous with secular values, rather than anything rooted in the Torah and Jewish law. But the actual words tikkun olam come from the Aleinu prayer and describe the Jewish aspiration to fix the world through the kingdom of God. The liturgical point is that a common temptation of some forms of religion is to dismiss physical reality, to see it as Socrates did, as a land of shadows. But for Jews, the opposite is true. We believe in heaven, 
but we relish and cherish our lives on earth because we believe that through the Torah, physical reality is not to be transcended or avoided, but sanctified. In a similar sense, the Catholic theologian R.R. Reno has written about how reading the philosophy of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, quote, has helped me see the larger significance of the Jewish metaphysical dream, one that sees the Torah as a gift and not a burden. The halacha, the all-encompassing array of divine imperatives, are as countless arrows of love shot downward and into human life. The more expansive and detailed the law, the more deeply and completely halachic man's life is penetrated by the divine, end quote. Both Johnson and Reno are well acquainted with religious Jews, and one might suggest that it is witnessing joyful Judaic obedience to the law, as well as the Jewish learning of that law, that truly allows one outside the Jewish community to come to appreciate it. Thus, the former Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput, told his congregation, following his visit to the Beit Midrash, the study hall at Yeshiva University, that, quote, what struck me first was the passion the students had for the Torah. They didn't merely study it, they consumed it. Or maybe it would be better to say that God's word consumed them. When a man and woman fall in love, Shapu continued, a kind of electricity runs not just between them, but also in the air around them. The story of every true encounter with God is the same, end quote. And then Shapu added, I saw this in the students at Yeshiva. Shapu is right. This electric spark is part of why the Torah is greater than gold and sweeter than honey. We will come tomorrow to the personal Psalms of David, which serve as a window into his soul. But if this biblical book begins with Psalm 1, describing the Jewish focus on the law, it is because through the centuries, we Jews have responded to the law with love and found therein the source of our deepest joy. This is Mayor Soloveitch, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.